long-awaited episode today. It's the B2B Adventures Boys. Strick and Az coming at you. Uh, welcome to the New Spirit Podcast. I'm your host, Isaac, aka Shrek. And uh, you are in the home of spearfishing, where we get nutty and geeky about spearfishing with people from all over the planet every week. And uh, today, it's the boys from up north. Uh, Strick and Az uh, have been re- much requested on the podcast over the years, and um, I recently got to meet the boys. Um, I was lucky enough to be out on a on a charter off off um, off Gladstone there in the bunker group in the Southern Great Barrier Reef, and these two were invited along as well, care of Adreno. Uh, so thanks to Adreno for putting this trip together because it was awesome to get to meet the boys. And um, I didn't just get to meet Strick and Az, they also had their mate Anzac along for the ride. And uh, Jeep has had some really good conversations over a few brews at night time with these lads and also shared uh, a couple of days diving. And uh, they work a system, these boys, and they're bloody good divers, let me tell you. And I was flat out um, trying to keep up with them. Uh, nevertheless, shot some good fish uh, just hanging around with them and learn, learn actually, I actually learned a ton just getting to dive and hang out with them. Just a pair of top blokes. And um, today's episode... You're going to enjoy it. Uh, these two boys know how to spin a yarn, and there's plenty of good actionable info today. Uh, we get nitty and gritty about hunting black spot tuskfish and a couple of other bits and pieces, so stick in for the ride. Um, I do want to tell you also, before we get into this show, because um, these boys are not real big into self-promo, so I'm going to do a little bit for them. Um, Az has got another podcast called Yarns with Az and Taz. And if you like a, a good Australian podcast with a couple of outdoors sort of loving blokes, and uh, both of them spear, uh, they both like have a farming background, very clever dudes from up in North Queensland, um, you're going to enjoy Yarns with Az and Taz. So check that podcast out as well. Um, B2Badventures.com.au has got sort of everything the Back to Basics boys are up to along here. You can find their YouTube channel, their socials. Uh, they're big onto that. And their videos, are, some of them have gone viral. Um, some of them don't, which is real weird because I, I think they're all bloody good. But, um, yeah, look, hold on to your seats today. You're in for a treat. The Back to Basics boys. Here we go. Stricken as. This episode of the Noob Spirit Podcast is brought to you by spearfishing.com.au. They've been on board for more than 100 episodes, and I'd love for you to shop at spearfishing.com.au. They have a price beat guarantee, hassle-free returns, flat shipping rates across Australia, and you can save 20 bucks. For every purchase over $200, if you use the code NOOBSPIRIT, you save $20. Thanks for supporting the Noob Spirit Podcast and shopping with spearfishing.com.au. Audio check, audio check. Testies, big testicles. Barramundi 1, Barramundi 2, shivering dingo. Up the guts, don't tell mum the dingo stole my baby. One, two, three. Perfect. That's staying in the interview too. Welcome to the new Spiro podcast. <laughs> it's the back to basics boys and they're already up to mischief. So we've got Strick and Az. Introduce yourselves, gents. G'day, Strick here from Back to Basics. Make up probably the, uh, the uglier version of Back to Basics it's become known, but... Um, some would argue the brains behind the operation. G'day, I'm Az from Back to Basics as well, and uh, only trust 48% of what Strick says. <laughs> now, good to good to be here, Shrek, and it's been great to meet you over the last couple of days, brother. Thanks for um, getting me out diving. I mean, you went out with us today, Az, because you wanted to have a have an internet, but um... R and R recharge, get ready for tomorrow. Will be like a bull at the gates, sunrise. 
Today I got out with the boys and I really enjoyed diving with it. Zach sort of carried the team a bit. But yeah, Jack Jack was missing in action a bit. But <laughs> I've got no rebuttal there because it's absolutely true. Zach is an honorary member of Back to Basics and he um, he well and truly pulled his weight today. Yeah, and the, the the rhyming we had on board. We had Zach, Isaac and Jack. It was, there's too much going on there. So See how we can fit ours into the mix tomorrow morning. <laughs> so, good luck with that one. Um, so, I mean, tell us how you, how you guys got started spearing. How did you meet each other? When did the bromance start? Well, that's about an hour in itself, but I'll try and make it concise. Uh, I personally started spearing uh, as a natural progression from fishing and growing up on the land. My father's side being into growing fruit, um, have a, a banana plantation amongst other exotic fruit up in tropical North Queensland, and mum's side was commercial fishing and cane farming. So they did... Uh, they chased barren salmon up in the Gulf of Carpentaria and then during the winter they'd come back to the coast and do Spanish mackerel, red emperor and harvest cane. So like during the week I was with dad up the farm and then on the weekends I'd, I'd be able to go out with my uncle and granddad who initially were just doing coast, a lot of coastal diving and we'd go just get your coral trout and, and your craze on the weekend when the weather was nice. So I started when I was about 12, 11 or 12, my brother and I got given for Christmas from my uncle spear guns and mum was just mortified uh, but we were stoked and it uh, just started a, a lifelong journey and passion for for being underwater and, and hunting. So you're a, far, you're a farm boy though? Yeah correct grew up on the farm and yeah between yeah, the rainforest and the reef which I'm very very grateful for. Well, yeah awesome you grew up in a beautiful part of the world are you like second generation or, or more? How Third generation yeah. North Queenslander. Yeah, third generation North Queenslander. My granddad's side had been here for since early, early Australian colonial times. But uh, my mother's side uh, was Maltese and came out as immigrants farming in the mid 1900s. Um, yeah, hard, hard workers and and relied on living off the land because yeah, they all grew up with nothing. So it was living and living off the rifle really, or a bit of net to try and get some fish. <laughs> Yeah, it's all, it's all starting to make sense, really. Some of your uh, colloquialisms and all that. <laughs> no, awesome, man. Awesome. Uh, thanks for introducing So what about you, Jack? Um, so with me, I grew up in Papua New Guinea, and it was probably the best upbringing um, I could possibly wish upon everyone. It was unreal. So where the spearfishing came into it, we'd go, go to school um, during primary school, so we were five, six, seven. At lunchtime, you'd go on lunch break. The school was right on the ocean. Um, everyone would run across and half the group would go and scurry up the fruit trees and collect some fruit and then the other half would either try jag fish or go spearfishing under the wharf and spearfish and a few others would get um, get a fire going and you'd bring the fish back and cook it straight up on, on the coals there and then you'd just head back to class in the afternoon once that process was all done. If you felt like it. Yeah, if, yeah, if, if you, you felt, felt like it. Back. Yeah, or if you wanted to keep spearfishing, you'd just <laughs> yeah, spear into the afternoon. So that's where it all started for me. You guys, you, you seem very natural in the water. I guess it comes from spending a lifetime in it. Yeah, I think so. A lot of people ask us, um, you know, what's the secret to holding your breath longer or how do I dive deeper? And I can't, I'm not really that helpful with people in that question. Doing it more. Just doing, doing it, more. it more. And, yeah. and starting young is definitely an advantage. And, you know, the best practice or training is just doing it as much as you can. So I think that's kind of why we're both comfortable in the water. Yeah, and growing up through from, from under eights pretty much – six, seven, eight, I got into swimming and then doing swimming competitively as a sport because dad played rugby league and he can barely get out of bed in the morning. His shoulders and knees are crook as. And so he didn't want me playing footy. He's like, oh, I just 
conserve the joints. Let's put him into the least impact sport we can possibly do. So he threw, threw me in the pool, had to stare at the black line for four hours a day for about 10 years of my, you know, eight to 18. But incredibly, that, that led to being incredibly comfortable in the water. Did you compete? Yeah, did. Yeah. Like went down to Brizzy and swam for Queensland in yeah. high school. What was your go-to? My uh, go-to was either 200 fly or 100 meter breaststroke. Yeah, so I love, love, love the gutsy ones. But yeah, I remember in when we were growing up swimming, I'd always just want to get the fins on and see how far I could go underwater, like how many laps of the pool you could do. It was a 25 meter pool, so you'd just be on up and back, up and back. It's a wonder any of us survived, isn't it? <laughs> I did it too. He was blue in the face and like, oh, 6.5 laps. You won't be that, boys, because I had two little brothers. So it's very competitive. Yeah. And it's a recipe for disaster sometimes in the pool. Hugely. Yeah. You hear some, you hear some horror stories. And yeah, obviously now, as we've grown up and matured and having, having a lot of different experiences uh, on the water through our own, yeah, our own adventures, that uh, yeah, you, you take safety as a, the, one of the high, well, the highest priority before anything else when you're out there. We'll get to safety. Um, you guys, like I dived with um, with with two out of the three today, and um, and I and, and it was super safe. There was a lot of um, really good communication, and most of it was non-verbal, but. There's a really good system we worked to, and it, it, it felt really good. But we were working real guns, which some people make big arguments about are unsafe. But I, f- I felt like it was done really well today. But obviously, working in with experienced dudes, it's a little bit of a different story. But there's some um, some big rules with real guns, I think. Yeah, definitely. Real guns, as far as just from a pure hunting point of view, is our preference because you can get in and out of caves and you can lay quite discreet on the bottom You know, when you're in ambush. Um, and it's just a lot less hassle in the water. But... We didn't start off with real guns, and I think um, we sort of moved into real guns once we had that safety in in, in um, a good safety structure of one up, one down. So, one person on the surface watching the person that does his dive all the way down. Um, you know, shoulder to shoulder with that person, and then on the way up, they make sure they've he's had their recovery breaths. You do a bit of a dive handover, and this is also why you end up landing better fish this way because you say, "Mate, there's a big mangrove jack up in the ledge. You know, hit the bottom and, and work to your left." And then a lot of the time, that next diver dives down and, 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 you know, targets that fish. So for the safety, I think you've done correctly. Like you saw today, mate, it can be all, all good with the real guns. Yeah, completely. Half, half the fish that we get is because of teamwork. And like Strick said, you come up, do a quick handover. You see anything down there? Yeah, there's quite a few spangos getting around the bottom. I recommend going to the left side of that rock. I just did the right side and I saw a jack come around the, you know, around the back there. So good chance it's going to keep your eye out for this. And then you go down and you've got in your head uh, a bit of a plan of attack so you're not wasting your time down there. You're conserving uh, and making precious every dive. And then the other thing with the real guns, how they can get kind of dangerous, not just for the people in the water, but if the, the boaty's not quite onto it and you have one person swim off, swim off to the left and one to the right, then that's where you can get in real trouble with currents and losing, losing divers. Yeah, and another point, like with the whole real gun float set up while we weren't um, using, like we, we don't often use floats. We will if we're, like if we're doing a lot deeper dives and if we're obviously hunting blue water fish, such as doggies or wahoo, yeah. big spanos. But we've always got someone in the boat whenever we dive at home on personal trips, any any diving we do, there's always someone in the boat. We never anchor. Um, we've learnt that from, yeah, experience. We find it's far more productive and far safer. Today you weren't there, but we we had a big tiger come in, and uh, and I so heard, yeah. and so having that boaty right there, just like, yep, 
Oh, we're out. You know, like it's just so easy. So, um, you know, it's, there's heaps of benefits to it. And running interference with other boats if you're in a heavy boat traffic area is a huge one. Um, no, awesome. Um, the first time I come across you boys was uh, a YouTube video or a Facebook video, and it was the blackout video. Um, so you blacked out, yeah? Yeah, correct. This was, this was probably seven years ago now, close to eight years ago. I had a blackout off cans on... Reef where we at? Linden? Linden Banks, hunting dogtooth tuna, one of our first times out doing any blue water spearing. So, yeah, it was yeah, very memorable, uh, unmemorable for me how you look at it. But, yeah, it was definitely a defining moment in our relationship um, and also in how we dive. And we, re we very much restructured how we, how we look at diving especially blue water. What was the background? Had you guys been diving all day? No, so yeah, we we went out of off Cairns, sunrise as you do. It was a beautiful morning, four of us in the boat. It was one of those days where there wasn't a breath of air. Perfect, went out and and uh, started having a dive. And in the morning we'd been doing, early morning we'd been doing some big dives. So constantly 20 plus, you know, one after the other, one after the other and not having much, not having much break between dives and we for so prior to this for context we'd never done a free diving course at all we'd never done any 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 prof professional um, help from yeah training whatsoever not even looking up and reading ourselves solely just cowboy diving and then you just naturally we progressed to diving deeper and our curiosity um, led us to wanting to shoot larger fish so we went out hunting a uh, dog tooth tuna and yeah I'd, I'd shot a I'd shot a couple of trout that morning and yeah, we'd, we'd also got a shaft caught at about 23 metres and that, like we'd all done a couple of dives to get that out. So we'd done a, a couple of deeper dives, like ripping, trying to, trying to get that shaft and that fish out, retrieved it and then from there uh, we, we continued to do some, some drifts and came across this doggy. Uh, it was my drop. I went down and followed the dog tooth down and it was swimming up current and I was swimming down on a 45 degree angle and I probably got down to about 17 meters and I could feel the urge to, I was like, oh yep, I need to go back up now, the natural urge you get. And I thought, oh, I'm, I'm out of range. Oh, well, that's fine. And I, as, I, as I made in my head the decision to come back up, the doggy took a 180 degree turn and started swimming back towards me. The adrenaline overtook and it hooked me and I realized how rare of an opportunity I thought at the time that was and I, overcommitted and went back down for the fish um, you know I, I'd, I'd come up to 16 meters and I went back down to 18 put the shot in and you know, I'm, I'm there on the line it just head for the reef and I'm trying to grab a bit of the line and in that every movement I'm making using up precious precious energy that is essential to getting me to the top so uh, yeah following that I, I don't have much recollection other than as I started to come to the surface yeah, big tingling through the legs, and then I blacked out from there. What happened from there, Jack? From my point of view, yeah, Aaron, as there's nothing better from a Spiro's point of view than when you're watching up the top and your mate lines up to shoot a fish. So as soon as he's lined up and going, please hit, please hit, he's shot the fish, it's taken off, and then his float line and the boy's just taken off as the doggies do start pulling the floats under. So I've gone over, jumped on the floats, and as I'm getting towed through the water, I then look over to Aaron and notice he's at about five metres, you know, on his way up. 
And then as I'm getting pulled out of the corner of my eye, it catches him what seems like a second later and he's now at six metres. And then that's just triggering my brain. It's something's, something's not right. He's not meant to be going sinking underwater. So then I've let go of the float and um, he's about 15 metres to my right-hand side and I've just swum, swum at him and as I'm swimming towards him, you can see his, his eyes are, are rolled in the back of his head and his face is a little bit bluey purple, even at this stage. And he's just, it, it looked to me like he was just engulfing, oh, 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 taking big gulps of water. Um, anyway, I thought that's not normal. I, I, could, I knew what was going on by this stage, grabbed him under the chin and just kicked as, a hard, as hard as I could to get to the surface. And um, once I got him on the surface, I was then hoping... Um, he'd, you know, be conscious and there'd be some sort of life. But he was just, as you know, with blackouts and with other people have experienced, there's just absolutely, it's just a weightless body. So kicking on the surface, I remember it being a real effort to keep him afloat. Did you dump his belt? Not at this stage, no. And then just the gargling noise that was coming out of him was just this horrible, horrible gargling noise. And then as I took his mask off, his whole face was purple and, and lips were blue. And um, and then after I um, held his head head up for a little while, I then gave him some big, big deep breaths, mouth to mouth on the surface, as we'd called for the boat. Did he have that big fucking buffy beard when you did that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I had to part the beard and yeah. make my way in. <laughs> but I yeah worked my way in there, which was which was quite an effort. Got in there and then gave him a yeah big big kiss, pretty much of. of um, you know, mouth to mouth on the surface. He'd been waiting about five years for that moment at this point. Yeah, I can see he's got a, he's got a little bit of. A, I better not say that. He's crack, he's cracking a chubby. Uh, just thinking about it. Uh. Um, and anyway, it was that good. It brought him back to life. Yeah, he then um, he then sort of vomited and and um, spewed up a lot of the salt water that was in his lungs, and we. We got him in the boat. Yeah, and it was at this stage. This day, the blue water day was firing. Where there was there was doggies everywhere. Sailfish had just come through, and we're like, "Oh shit, we've got to get back as back to the hospital." Um, and in the the boat, um, whose boat it was, the skipper was going, "Fuck off, no way, we're leaving." Well, I just saw a sailfish, and there's doggies everywhere. And he's alive. He's right. He's right. He's come good. But um, secondary drowning's a thing, isn't it? That's exactly right. So I got on the, the phone to mum who's a doctor and I was like, hey, mum, as is blacked out, but he's all, she's all good now, isn't he? And she's like, no, no, no. Like this whole secondary drowning thing where someone who's got salt water in their lungs then collects too much fluid and then they drown. So so then the whole process was we had to um, got on the phone to emergency services, pinned it back to the closest point of mainland and then um, ambulance with lights flashing to, to, the, to the emergency set up and he was over there overnight and and it was a pretty full-on experience for us it sounds full-on i'm going to link up the video on today's show notes so if people go to noobspiro.com forward slash b2b that'll be simple and then uh, i'll link up the video because it's pretty um it's pretty dramatic and did you got I, th I think i read some comments people accused you guys of um of staging it <laughs> did they? At, at one stage i, I heard that and, I, and or i read it i can't remember and i was like no nah, no nah, you can see that there's nothing it wasn't organised for a start. Like you swam from fifteen off. Like if you're staging that, it'd be bloody. You know, it'd be crazy. Yeah, that's that's one of the main reasons I don't generally go through any of our comments 
on YouTube, or I'll do a very brief look and look for anything positive to respond to. But yeah, I'll I'll uh, I'll just put a guarantee out there for anyone watching our shit. It's legit, and we don't put up things that are fake for the purpose of getting called out for not being uh, authentic in what we do because we love what we do, and like we wouldn't put it out there. If- well, I was, I was reading it, and like you, you're one of only a very few people that have shared a blackout video because it's such a like maybe there's an element of shame to it, like of you know we've made a mistake and it's something that we should hide and but like people don't learn if you hide your mistakes and um and you and he lived so I mean it's not such a big mistake it's just a blackout. Now that's definitely and the the thing we've always said is the only good thing to come out of it is that we were both filming at the same time and hopefully it could be a lesson to other young spiros getting into it that don't make the same mistake. You know, it would have been easy for us to go, oh, I was down at 40 metres and, you know, as I shot this big tuna, a shark came in and I blacked out. But it wasn't the case. And you can then go back and analyse the dive and look at little mistakes that may have led to what happened. And we've had a lot of young Spiros then go, oh, mate, that was great. I didn't know that could happen. Thanks, you know, and then you're like, well, that's the purpose we we shared that. The whole point of of sharing it was that if we can – get young spear fishermen or people who have been spear fishing for a long time who haven't taken these considerations um, or thought about what could happen if you're pushing your body or um, if this happens to one of your friends. And if we, if it, it didn't feel right of us if we didn't post that footage. It felt that, you know, you can't let ego get in the way of helping other people progress through their journey um, underwater hunting in a safe way because, uh, you know, if, if we help a handful of people after watching that video and we have personally like strick said message us saying thank you so much for sharing that and you know having the vulnerability to show such raw footage of yeah. something that and like this is this isn't something it was never only in the last couple of years it's been easier for me to talk about this was something that for a very long time i had a very like a lot of emotional stress and trauma from you know i I couldn't have a – I was having nightmares about drowning for months after. Did it pull the joy out of diving? No, I it, I was just – it took a long time from well, – not a long time, six to eight months before I felt – started feeling slightly comfortable again in the water. I – yeah, I, I felt very stressed but, but <laughs> in it's, the water. And it certainly changed the way we dive and it put things into perspective in that no fish is worth your life. Because that's what it almost came down to. We were that keen to land a doggy that there was, there was nothing else that would get in your way. But now if similar things happen and you're almost out of breath and there's a fish there, just go to the surface, get a breath. The fish will probably still be there. Like no fish is worth your life. I feel like people read that and they think it's a cliche, but when you hear a story like that and then you hear that message reinforced, all of a sudden it has a lot more meaning for people. So. Yeah, and I, and I honestly do look back at it now after a lot of reflection and I, I see it as one of the defining points in my life and one of the best things that ever happened to me because when you go that far to the point of no return and you get ripped back, it's as if every day now has been this bonus day because I could have so easily died that day or could have so easily for being unconscious for minutes on end had serious brain damage. Um, so the fact that I can still dive, I can still communicate, I can still think and function normally after having such a traumatic experience, it just made me, it made me be incredibly grateful for every single day and really treat it like a gift. And you hear that from, I guess, people who have horrific accidents or car, car accidents or whatnot. And yeah, it just really makes you reframe what truly matters. And that's, 
like the biggest thing other than obviously the safety that I've drawn from from that incident yeah have you so obviously you've felt an incredible sense of gratitude obviously you were pretty grateful towards Jack as well have you had the chance to return serve at some stage or almost or oh in 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 different ways yeah we've been through a lot of different adventures the highest and the lowest that you could go through and and yeah we've we've got each other Jack mentioned some brothels in Southeast Asia I get is that one of them yeah, look, uh, we don't need to talk about everything on the field or <laughs> Sorry, off the field. Sorry, boy, just having a stare, just having no, a stare. No, no, look, speculate, <laughs> I'm sure he was yeah. probably singing a song or... Um, let's get into hunting techniques, get into some nuts and bolts stuff. Um, Perfect segue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm like that, it's just a gift I have, you know. Like. Um, Favourite species to hunt and how do you hunt them effectively? Yeah, I'm going to go with... Uh, the black spot tusk fish or the blue bone tusky. Yeah, I really enjoy the tusky in that they're not so easy to find. They're dominating. They're very strong when you're getting the larger models. Uh, you get them in a range of depths of water and it's difficult to find and land big ones. And no matter if they're smaller models, you know, th around three kilos or whether they're the larger scale 10 plus, they're still incredibly good eating they don't lose any integrity in the, the quality of flesh so yeah i really like tuskies okay so finding them how do you find them find them i generally look for like rubbly shoaly sandy country because they uh eating up uh, crabs and shells and digging through the sand so anywhere that's isolated bombies or a bit of rubbly shoaly country that has you know broken bits of coral and, and vast bits of sand through it uh, and generally off from the main structure so they won't be directly on the bommie the majority of the time they'll be 10 20 30 meters off shoaling the uh, and, and scouting the the wider proximity of that isolated rock for instance and so you try once you find this ground how do you cash in on that yeah so jet every, probably a quarter of the time you might be lucky enough if the visibility is good enough and it's you know the you know not too deep if it's not 15, 20 meters, then you might be able to see them from the surface and then you can you can, you can go down. Good, good technique that I like to use is just heading off to the side of a rock and making sure you've got something to hold on to, a little, little bit of rock or a bit of, a bit of bottom, and you can hold onto the bottom, get yourself nice and relaxed, tuck that chin in, hit the bottom, and, and just disguise yourself as a bit of a stingray or a manta ray or a turtle on the bottom that's just feeding and start scratching yourself a little bit of sand or flicking a little bit of sand and keeping that chin nice and tucked in and then everything around you will just become more comfortable and think that you're a part of that ecosystem like a turtle or a manta ray and then just lifting your mask up doing a little bit of a scan and nine times out of ten they'll be incredibly curious and come right in on you and give you a nice broadside shot and shot placement's really important especially with the bigger models that you're not shooting them too high or too low because they're such a strong fish they'll quite often mutilate themselves to get off that shaft and you'll see them you might see them swim away if you've shot them too high with a big rip through the, the back of the neck even if you've shot an inch and a half below the top so uh, shot placement's crucial, and I like shooting them on a 45-degree angle instead of straight side on. Um, otherwise, they can quite simply rip a good hole and, and get out. Um, scales, I guess, are a big one too big sometimes. Scales. Big scales, yeah. Make sure your tip's sharp. Don't go shooting rocks beforehand. Mm. Um, and, yeah, make sure you've got, you got a lot of power and punch to, to hit and get through those thick scales and out the other side. You like shooting them in the head? Mm, I shoot just back from the head. 
yeah, a bit back, like down, like don't you don't want to go through the gill plates, um, but just above like the gill plates, like behind the eye. Obviously, it's good to go for the stone shot and put them to sleep. Most of us don't do that with central body mass. Boom. Yeah, boom. <laughs> yeah, and I and because they've got such nice fillets, you, yeah. you don't want to just go straight straight yeah. smack bang. I'm getting more selective with that as I've I've gotten older through spearing. You guys have put some fish on the boat in the last uh, in the last few days consistently. You've, you've you've done well. Thank you. Yeah, we've been diving. <laughs> we've been working for them. Yeah, I haven't seen any black spot tusk fish come over. Did you get one? We've got oh. two. Oh, two. Oh, Didn't okay. see the eight kilo model that came over on the second day. I think it was seven point six. It'll be it'll be nine by the end of the trip. <laughs> uh, good stuff. And Jack, you had a species you like to hunt. Yeah, the species. We spent a bit of time with them today. The green jobfish, uh, one of my favourite fish to hunt, for a few different reasons. Um, first of all, they're very challenging. You know, it's not often you you don't just come across a silly a silly jobfish. Um, and the other reason is they really, when you're hunting them, they respond to your every movement. So say if you swim them at them a meter, they'll generally move a meter. Or if you look at them, they'll do a certain thing. If you look away, they'll do a certain thing. So um, especially when you're on the bottom hunting them, every move you make, it's almost like this dance, the jobby dance, they will make a responsive move and it's then trying to get them where you want them to, to shoot them. That's what Zach said to me when he got up. He's like, oh, yeah, a little dance there. Yeah, well, it is, isn't it? You you make a move and then the jobby will make a move. So um, I love hunting them. There's generally, from my experience, I've, I reckon there's two kind of different scenarios you'll find green job fishing. And one is when you're um, out in the blue water and you're burling up, they uh, they just can't resist the burly. So as soon as you start chumming up a little bit on a, on a drop-off, Quite generally, the, the green jobfish will come in and, and eat the burley. Um, they're pretty quick through the burley, and that's a, uh, one of the probably the easier ways to shoot a really big one as well. And once they're in the burley, one of the approaches that I like to do is you'll see them sort of chewing through and making their way around your, the burley trail. I dive away from the burley trail and then sort of aim up at a piece of burley that he hasn't yet got but you think he's going to eventually make his way to and then as soon as he turns towards that bit um just race him to that burley so swim quickly at at it and he almost gets in a competition with you to swim further at it and think he's going to beat you to it um because they're really you see them competing with sharks and that kind of stuff so that's how we started doing this Mm -hmm. so they'll actually accelerate towards the burley once you move towards it and then, um, yeah, move towards it, aim up at that bit of burley, just wait for him to open his mouth and, and um, yeah, as he eats it, bang, that's when you, when you aim to take the shot. So that's one scenario is on the burley. And then the second is um, where you're just through the lagoon hunting on sand or, or even a reef edge. And this is the way I like, I like hunting them because um, you really, without the burley there, you've actually got to earn the fish in your dive. So... Um, with this approach, I'd, I like to make a dive and if you can find a little bit of shelter on the bottom, whether it's underneath a little cave or beside a, a, a rock, yeah, camouflage yourself in and then just flick a little bit of sand up or, or scratch the coral and um, this is where they'll, they'll then swim towards you and you see that gnarly chin of theirs with the teeth out swimming right at you and you almost get so excited on the bottom that it's working but you've got to hold your position for you know, a little bit longer, a little bit longer to allow them to come in. So, um, yeah, I love doing that. And then that's where I was talking about with the whole dance. Every move you make, if you lift yourself too quickly, they'll spook. So you've got to really 
um, really think about your movements with that. And if you can land one that way, um, I think that's a, a awesome, awesome fish to get. That, it's really cool when they're coming in at you and then they jam on the brakes. When they flare those fins and they just turn on a dime, they look amazing. Like, yeah. And, you know, like, I don't know, it's hard to describe how cool they look. They can just turn on nothing. Yeah, yeah, and they get that sort of green pulse of colour as they turn. The dorsal fin comes up, their teeth go out. Yeah. Yeah, they're a tough-looking fish and they're weird because they're not really a reefy and they're not... They're not a pelagic. They're just kind of something in between. We'll get we'll get one tomorrow, mate. We had a we had a fair bit of fun hunting them today over Morning over shots. a couple of drifts. Yeah, well, they were just yeah, they were keeping their distance. But Isaac, you got a shot into one of them. Yeah, I got a shot into one, and I buggered one up. I uh, Zach was watching. I dropped down, and this thing was right there, and I knew he wasn't going to um, keep going. So I've just sort of buggered off in another direction. Got down, and he's swimming off, and then I've thrown two handfuls of sand, and he's spun right around and come in at me. And then I've chucked up another handful of sand to further entice him, and he hated that. He just spun around and took off. What's well, it's similar to a dance, isn't it? You might you might throw a hand up somewhere, and it's just not don't get the well, right received, response, yeah. and, and off they off yeah. the job he goes. I asked him for a dance, and he said no. He said so no, that was it. Yeah, but no, and then uh, I put a shot in another one as well. But uh, it was a smaller model, but tore off on the way up, which was a bit disappointing. Need to work on my marksmanship as well. That was cool. It was one of those days where it didn't quite work for me, but like it left me frothing for tomorrow. You know what I mean? Like sometimes those days, and then your mind turns over, like, oh, how could I do that better? So yeah, and then when you do do everything you want to do better on a dive, when you're going to hit, you know, that big dive and play with the the sand on the bottom and then land that jobby, it makes it all that more rewarding, don't you, don't you think? Have you tried sound on jobby, like uh, making sounds in your throat, or I, I often like doing a bit of I'll make, I'll make a few trevally like sounds under the water I occasionally do that and also I'll strum the, the rubber that initial investment you make in your spearfishing gear does take a long time to often see fruit it's expensive to get started and that's why we've partnered up with spearfishing.com.au you can head over to spearfishing.com.au and use the code noobspirit to save money on equipment it's a fantastic place to get started. They've got huge brands like Rob Allen, Rife, Picasso, Selvmar, Sporosar, Boucher, Shark Shield and more. Not only do they have a huge range, but they've got 70 passionate people in store that can help you choosing the right equipment. It's a huge investment to get started spearfishing and whether you're in the process of buying your first bunch of equipment or you're wanting to upgrade one component of, you, of your gear like a wetsuit or a spear gun, spearfishing.com.au can help you. Use the code NoobSparrow, save $20 on every purchase over 200 Thanks for supporting the NoobSparrow podcast and shopping with spearfishing.com.au. Um, I wanted to move into Veterans Vault, and uh, today's topic is quite intriguing, I think. Um, whoever thought of it was absolutely very clever, I think. Yep. Um, but it was the transferable skills from line fishing to spear fishing, and then vice versa, full circle from spear fishing back to line fishing. Because um, you guys do a lot of both, don't you? And, you? and you seem equally passionate about it. Yeah, definitely. Definitely love both of them. Both got a time and a place. And we seem to go through phases where, you know, one month all we want to do is spear, and then the next month we're on to catching a certain species online. So, yeah, we love both of it. Um, for me personally, how line fishing helped my spear fishing was when I was younger, you know, you're four, five, six, you start getting your first books. I was just an absolute fish nerd. You know, I had got Grant's Guide to Fishers and just read it back to front and knew every species, where they were, their size limits and their, you know, scientific name. And so then when I got into the, 
the fishing came from that. When I got into the spear fishing, I already knew all the species, which one were desirable, which one were no take. And, um, you know, a lot of people that get into spear fishing, they say, oh, we had a guy on board, Ryan, um, he's a gun diver. And he said, today I swam past an eight kilo mangrove jack because I didn't know it was a mangrove jack. So, so I guess that kind of scenario I had, um, I was lucky in that I knew all the fisher and where to catch them on a line really helps you spearing. Um, you're aware of certain currents and, and certain depths of certain fish. So that's what helped um, definitely from the line fishing into the spearing. I sort of had a um, almost a bit of a head start in that, I thought. Appreciation for structure as well. and Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Um, a structure on, on certain where certain fish hang on the reef because you've been fishing there there online and you caught them repetitively so um yeah definitely certain structures and, and currents of a reef for sure so you guys i think one of the biggest things with spearfishing is opportunity you know like you can have all the hunting techniques in the world but if you're in the wrong place they're not going to do jack shit so you've still got to figure out where to go and you know what you're likely to be targeting you guys seem to be pretty good at that side of things is it, is it do you think some of that is from line fishing or is it from both or yeah, thanks for the, the question. Uh, I So to give context, similar to Strick, I grew up, it was just fishing. I didn't really know about spearing. It was just on the weekends or after school, I'd be chasing jungle perch, sooty grunner, barra, mangrove jacks up at our farm or in the freshwater creeks. We're going beach fishing for whiting and flathead. And like Strick, just loved it and was like learning about where the fish were and what they were doing. Uh, but I was very fortunate to have my grandfather and my uncle who were commercial fishermen. So their livelihoods just relied on knowing where to go and when to get what fish. And that was the biggest transferable skill for me from going from fishing to spearfishing, which I think for many people is the natural progression, becoming more curious and wanting to see what's underwater and uh, go into that that element of of selective hunting. But it was getting to know and learn what the best time is for getting what and when and where. So from a young age, I was told to keep my eyes open and observe. You, I constantly needed to be observing. What's the temperature? Is the day overcast? Uh, what time of the day is it? Uh, what time of the year is it? Has there been a lot of rain? What's the moon phase? What's the tide doing? Why are there a lot of bait jumping on the beach today? Um, you know, is... You know, is it a good time for catching mud crabs? Like there'd be like there'd be times of the year where the weather was amazing and I'd go when I was younger, oh, can we go catch some mud crabs? And my granddad's like, forget about it. I don't, it's not the time. He said, there's a time for everything. And their lives very much progressed because they live in a, like they lived and lived off a of primary industry, fishing and farming. There was a time of the year for everything. There's a time of the year for propagating and striking your seeds there's a time of the year for planting there's a time of the year for mackerel there's a time of the year for crayfish there's a time of the year for yeah, everything uh, so that that was one thing I learned so when I when I started spearing I had a better understanding of this time of the year I, I shouldn't go out for mackerel because there, there's a very little chance there will be a lot of quality mackerel and I'll be wasting time but it could be a better time of the year for coral trout and crayfish up on the shallower reefs so yeah, I have a real appreciation for what you're saying. Like I go out hunting with and uh, stay on a farmer's property, and you learn more in three hours just listening to him talk about his farm and how the land works and the cycles and the seasons play out. And I guess out on the ocean with commercial fishermen, people that do it for a living, it's the same thing. They just observe every day and they 
they know like i see that that means this that means that yeah con- constantly and as it, i remember when i was younger some of my earliest memories when i was a young teenager 11 12 13 going out with my granddad to the reef and i in my head i still can picture the big adventure it was like whoa it was the early dark winter cold mornings and you were heading out to the reef to get mackerel and you got all the you know the, the big outriggers on the side and uh yeah, you know, like helping load the ice up, your little scrawny 12-year-old getting getting the gear in. And then as you're heading out, hit my granddad would go, all right, you drive. And he'd sort of lay up, he's, you know, in his late 70s by that point, and he's put his feet up in the back. And I'd go, oh, which, which way do I go? Can you plot, plot a course for me on the, on the plotter? And he'd go, see that peg hanging at the back on the rope? Line that up with that mountain ridge. All right, what's the time? 40 minutes, sit it on 20 knots. When it's 40 minutes, take it out of gear. Sure enough, 40 minutes, keeping that peg lined up with a certain mountain ridge, we'd pull up and he's like, all right, put the lines in. Within five minutes, you catch a mackerel. <laughs> so it was, it was t- changing the, it was reframing your mind to think, all right, really just observe, keep looking at everything. Like you said, when you're on the land, you've got to take in what's around you. I didn't grow up in Australia. And so learning species here for me was really intimidating. And, it, and it's still it's still a bugbear of mine and and people say study books and stuff and i mean that's what i do but you look at grant's guide to fishes and it's like you pay attention to sort of maybe three or four at a time and you learn about them and then you sort of put it down and forget about it for a while and it's not until you've had another issue that you go oh i better get back into the fish again it's a slow way to to uh, accumulate your knowledge of species and definitely a lot of the species will look a hell of a lot different to they do in a fish book once you see them underwater and quite often the way to ID, say, a coral trout is not because of its colours. It's not orange with blue spots underwater. It's whereabouts it's sitting on a certain bommy and the, you know, the way it moves underwater and the general shape and its characteristics. The varieties of trout. And, That's right. Yeah. And you don't see that in the, the, the fish book. You've got to get underwater and, and kind of almost um, ask all those questions yourself and see how the fish move and behave. And then you can, you can then from then pick up the species, I think. What about rigging? Rigging from line fishing and being out on the ocean, um, you, you would have had your head around a lot of the knots and stuff we use. Yeah, it's general handy and you, you also have a, a good idea of um, different fish's characteristics. So with the you know, Spanish mackerel, for example, you know they've got big teeth and you know they're you know, predatory fish. So you then say, oh, if we're rigging for this, we want um, a flasher in the water because we know they're going to be feeding like this. And um, like with a, if you're shooting wahoo that are really fast fish, you say we're going to want more stretch in our in our float lines because we from catching them online we know they're really fast. So there's these kind of things. Just knowing the the more about the fish and that the species then can allow you to to rig your gear properly. Yeah, my my biggest message would be testing all of your gear, and that was something that we did when we were connecting a braid to leader or leader to hooks or lures. Is that you'd give it a big and you'd really put it put it to the test as if a fish was going to hit that and strike. So same thing when we're doing up all of our, same thing when we're doing all of our spear spear gears or floats, lines, rubbers, whatever it is, I'm big time testing them, testing them further than what they, I think they would go in, in the heat of battle. Yeah, nice. What about full circle? Like a lot of spearos kind of, some of them come from line fishing and then they kind of, they maybe they weren't even that successful at line fishing. They get to spear fishing, they're like, ah, it's going to be shooting fish in a barrel. And they get in and maybe they do find some success after some time. A lot of them don't make a full circle back to line fishing. They sort of lose that first that first passion. Um, but you guys haven't. Yeah, a lot of people get into the spearing and then it's kind of this his 
you know, us versus them mentality of, oh, we're Spiros and, you know, we, we don't go into the line fishing. But, yeah, like you said, we um, I love both of it. I find it really complements my line fishing after, um, after having done a bit of spear fishing and you know exactly where the fish are from seeing them underwater on dives to where you can then find them on a, by looking at them on a sounder. You say, oh, well, I know exactly that's a coral trout here because it's sitting right at the front edge of the bommie. Um, you know, this will be a nanny guy because it's five metres above the bottom. And then you can then rig your baits accordingly and drop um, right where you know the fish are and the fish are feeding. And the biggest giveaway from from that in a lot of people who are just general fishermen, say if they find um, a bommy the size of, you know, your general living room, they just, all right, no worries, drop your line on any side of that bommy and you hope for a bit of luck. But from swimming it, you know that all the fish that are feeding, they're sitting on the upcurrent side, the pressure side, and you, all the bait fish are there, the coral trout, the trevally, and, and the whole feeding cycle. So you imagine a bait sitting at the back edge of that, you know, from spearfishing, there's just no fish there. So do Moses Perch and Jacks break that rule? Do they like sitting out of the current sometimes? What, what do you, you guys think about this stuff? I'm, I'm curious. I'm genuinely curious. Yeah, the exception to like the pressure point rule of them all holding up current is the fish that are in a cave that are actually sheltering and hiding from the, so say the, the caves on the back of the rock while all the other fish will move around the full 360 of the rock to follow the current, the fish in the cave will just stay in the cave no matter where the current's at, yeah. And um, those jacks, they won't hold out in the in the current like um, like a coral trout would. So, And so they feed predominantly, do you think, on bait inside these caves? Yeah, if you stick your head in any of those caves, it's quite often it's hard to see to the back of the cave because there's all that what we call white, white bait. It's just... You know, the size of your pinky and all the fish in there has to do is just open their mouth and then they get this full full mouthful. Is this so, the dumbest bait ever? But it's like they don't have any other option, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why a lot of line fishermen um, you know, very, very rarely catch big jacks out at the reef. It's kind of only on a certain moon and, um, you know, I've heard from a lot of people who know what they're talking about, an hour bite window in a, in a certain depth of water, you might get a few big ones. But... When we're spearing, they're quite often a lot of the, the fish we enjoy targeting the most. You know, those those nice big reef jacks. Because we like getting into their homes and, <laughs> <laughs> knock, and just knock. disrupting their peace. Hello. <laughs> yeah, I I completely agree with what Strick said there. And the only thing I'd add to that is that one thing we love doing when we go out for a day or a weekend on the reef or camping on a beach somewhere, and we're gonna we're gonna have the opportunity to go out and have a spear. Is we like to be ready for anything. So we'd like to have a dilly or a crab pot and we'd like to have a, a popping rod and a soft plastic flicking rod or a jigging rod so that in the morning when you go out there's different times of the day that are better suited to different things so first up in the morning it'd be great to cast over some bombies or do some jigging or some trolling along a hard edge for some spanish mackerel so nice to pick up a mackerel or two in the morning on the troll and then go for a dive for a few hours and as the the tide say drops and it becomes low around lunch then you can go into the shallows and have some lunch, jump over, try to get a, get a couple of craze. And then you know, while you're out there, have a bit of a, a pop for some GTs in the shallows or some trout, some spangled emperor, whatever's around. And also too for the boaty, because we, we never anchor up the boat. We've always got someone in the boat. Um, you know, they'll often like to just do wide circles around us and troll or you know, have a bit of a jig. And quite often the boys will be in the water and then <laughs> someone in the boat's going, hey, hurry up, boys, I'm getting trout. They're just throwing trout in the boat, getting them on the jig. So, yeah, we always like to, to keep keep one in there 
just uh, you know, wherever the day's taken you, be ready. And the other reason we enjoy both covering, you know, the line fishing and the spearing is that, especially here in Australia, some species that are great fun to catch on the line, aren't, uh, we don't enjoy targeting them on the spear because we're quite selective with what we spear. So an example of that's the big GTs. Um, you know, love catching them on a popper. You know, that's just adrenaline-packed, great fun. Um, but I wouldn't wouldn't want to pull the trigger on one here in Australia where, you know, they're not great eating and we kind of um, enjoyed targeting other tastier species better. So you can catch the fish and release it and appreciate, you know, the fish and, and, and you know, the the challenge and the fight and everything without having to kill the fish. Yeah. The battle of wits too, I think. Yeah. They generally come out on top. The fishes and sparrows all have that, that in common, you know, that's that. That not the novelty of the chase and the figuring it out and feeling like you've, oh, I've got this thing right. And when it all comes together, it's really satisfying, I think. Yeah, or on the opposite side of that, like going back to the drawing board. Oh, where do we go wrong today? Surely all the stars were aligned and then you come home scratching your head with uh, 10 lures down. It sounds like you guys sort of enjoy the novelty of it, like trying and experimenting with new things. and Yeah, love learning and also just the places that it takes us. Um, for instance, with the the likes of the fishing, uh, you can go up into the right up into Cape York and chase Saratoga. It's prehistoric, incredible looking fish. And getting a fish is a, always a bonus. It's just being out there surrounded by untouched raw nature um, or the likes of spearing going to remote locations through Australia or the South Pacific searching for wahoo and dogtooth tuna. So it's the places and the people that you meet on the, the journey of it. Hey, Zach. Have you got the Fahrenheit and Celsius comparison there? If you look it up, just can you tell us what 24 degrees is in Fahrenheit just so I can make a joke for the listeners? But um, advice for spearos that don't line fish um, and advice for line fishers that don't spearfish. Every line fisher I chat with says, oh, no, I've, I've seen what comes out of there. I'm not getting in. The men in grey suits hold a lot of fear for a lot of line fishers, I think. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And some of the... The, the most well-traveled commercial fishermen we know and have spoken to, these guys have seen it all on the ocean. They say, you guys are bloody mad for jumping in there. You know, the shark's in there. And then when we come back with some of the stories about, um, you know, losing fish to big sharks and all this kind of thing, it just... Confirms it, everything. It conf- yeah, it confirms everything. It further adds to their fear. So I guess a bit of advice, but, you know, um, very rarely do any actual, you know, shark attacks happen, the kind of the whole fear is a lot more dramatic than the reality underwater. Um, so advice from a Spiro to a fisherman is that not all the sharks are going to eat you. Jump in there, interact with them. It's another thing to learn, isn't it? How to interact with them. Yeah. Definitely. And not to be terrified of them. You know, that you can we swim with them all day, every day, and, and um, you know, very rarely does it ever call for a time to be terrified. So, I'm pretty sure 24 degrees is over 70 Fahrenheit. And I just wanted to point out the fact that you guys are in 5 mil wetsuits. And uh, for me, this is absolutely balmy. And here's you guys, shiver- the Shivering Dingoes is the name of your vessel down here. All right. So Shivering Dingo, very apt name for our, our crew and our vessel. We come from far north Queensland, which is, and we dive the likes of Papua New Guinea and Vanuatu, generally warmer waters up around the 27 to 30 degree mark. Uh, I prefer being toasty, warm, hot. I've got a five mil wetty on here on the Southern Great Barrier Reef. What's it been sitting on? 20, 24, 23, 24 to 23. So I'm I'm still a little bit cool. Like I, I'm I'm getting flushes of water, and I'm when I get out of the boat and the wind hits me, I'm going, oh, lucky I'm not in anything less than a five mil. Now nah, it hasn't been honestly, it hasn't been super warm. But I've been in a three mil um, 
closed cell suit and I've been fine. But obviously we're diving down a 19, 20 degree water at the moment. Just not used to it. Just not used to it. We're normally used to diving in boardies and a rashy top or a one and a half mil top. And yeah, rarely having bottoms on. And advice the other way from... um, from lionfishers to, to spiros. Oh, it's just at the end of the day, it's what you're into. Yeah. You know, if, you know, if you, you you go out and you do what you love. You know, whether it's whether it's fishing, whether whatever type of fishing, whatever type of um, spear, and you're hunting and you're doing as long as you're not getting in anyone's way, hurting the environment, pissing anyone off. Just yeah, just you know, recognize that we're all there to be in the outdoors, and that life is like life is full on for a lot of people and life, you know, everyone's working hard and everyone, well, a lot of people, I know many of like myself and many mates use spearing and fishing and going on these outdoor adventures as, as a release, as therapy. So understand that a lot of people, there's a lot, there's, you know, everyone's fighting this battle. You got, you, you very much know nothing about. So when you see people out there, you know, if they're frustrated or they have a go at you, maybe reframe it and go, you know what? They probably haven't had a fucking shit week. They probably had a really full-on week, and they're out there just, they're out there just having a fish and trying to get a feed, and probably got a lot in yeah, common with yourself. So yeah, yeah, exactly. You should, you should be friends. Yeah, yeah, and then a lot of the time, I've found that, uh, you know, if you met at the boat ramp before you went out, or when you came back, other than maybe in the, the, the heat of battle out on the water, fighting over a spot or a bommie or a ledge or a wreck, uh, you'd be you'd be high fiving and bum tapping and hugging and being best mates. Um, you know, there'd be no 1.5 meters. You know, you'd be, you'd be good mate. So yeah, just just understand that everyone's out there to have a great time. That was an awesome veterans' vault, boys. Any parting comments with the the line fishing spearfishing dichotomy? No, they both complement each other. Yeah, and if you haven't if you haven't tried the other one, get into it. Yeah, you'll learn more. You'll be a better spearo. You'll um have a greater knowledge of the whole sport, which we yeah. enjoyed. And for line fishermen, we we touched on it, but a lot of very reluctant because they've seen or heard these stories about big sharks or big crocs or big jellyfish or big stingarays. But just start out in really, you know, the protection of an island, really clean, snorkeling, and, and just you know, see see how it goes. Like, you know, feel it out. Start small. Um, let's move into scary stories. Um, you just mentioned crocs, so I'm intrigued. Have you guys had some experience with them? So now to scare all the line fish shows <laughs> off, so we're just trying to get into the sport. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, I can give you a croc story. Uh, two, got two stories. Once I was diving, oh, I was driving for my mate and we're hunting crays coastally up in far north Queensland down near Mission Beach and we were near the mouth of a river but I knew that near that mouth there was some sort of rubbly bottom, couple of small low isolated bombies that would be, that you can rarely get them clean many times of the year, one of those spots and, you know, maybe a handful of times and I was like, oh, today's probably going to be clean enough. So I took him over there, dropped him on the rock and it's probably six meters deep and he went down, sort of did a loop and then he just hit the surface and launched in the boat because I had the boat really close knowing that it was a little bit of a high risk area. That's why he's in the water and not you. Yeah, exactly. Actually, <laughs> nah, sorry, Lexi. Big sexy. Yeah, so it was our mate Lex who we grew up diving with and yeah, he jumped in the boat and his face was white and he... It's like, croc, croc, croc. And I'm like, what, what, you're right, you're right. And he's like, he just swam around the side of this rock and just came face to face, probably meter, meter and a half viz, with a massive tail, like big gnarly croc tail laying on the sandy rubble. So that was one, one encounter. And then the other encounter in the water was I was diving the back of a stinger net, uh, just by, 
oh, it was probably just after, yeah, just after February, like when the barra season opens. Occasionally you'll get barramundi on the outskirts around the footings for these stinger nets. And these stinger nets for people who've never heard of them before is basically a little protective area uh, that's meshed off with a big float around it to stop box jellies and blue bottles coming through so it's safe to swim through summer in final Queensland but I was swimming around the back of it the viz was probably yeah that coastally meter and a half viz all sandy bottom and I was swimming on the outskirts and occasionally you'll get finger mark jacks flathead barras like probably five or ten meters behind the net so I was coming up to the corner of the net where is generally a bit of a pressure point there'll be bait hanging and I hit the bottom probably 15 meters before to try and do the stealth approach along the bottom and I'm just slowly kicking along the edge of the net and I'm and I'm seeing shadows and I had you know a little 90 90 roller and I'm just scanning it scanning it ready trigger uh, finger ready and then I'm you know I'm seeing bait flicking flicking and then I just came to the end and it was quite silty and I just saw this big log black log black as land on the bottom I'm going oh maybe there'll be something along the side of it and I, as I got closer I started running out of breath and I'm like okay I'll, I'll come up and as I started coming up, I was still angling towards it and probably a meter off, I realized it was a croc just laying on the sand, probably probably seven foot, eight foot, so not a monster, but a bit longer than myself. And oh, just my heart oh, just dropped. And as I started reaching the surface, probably three or four meters deep, it, it went out of sight. So I hit the surface and the croc vanished and it was just all silty brown around me. So just being on the top of the water and knowing that there's a croc laying just below you within a few meters was a, oh, and it wasn't doing anything. It wasn't being gnarly, but they're, they're unpredictable. And, you know, they've just got such a, oh, such a, such a prestige around them. And luckily my brother was probably a hundred meters away in the tinny and I just, Jack, Jack, Jack. And he whoa, whipped around. I launched in the boat and he said, there was a croc there, wasn't there? And he said, I said, yeah, man. He said, you wouldn't have been yelling like that if there wasn't. Could be the only thing. So, yeah. Takeaways, takeaways. Like, um, obviously, it sounds like there's some areas where you've just got to avoid. Yeah, it's getting far, far more risky coastal diving in a lot of North Queensland. It really is. And you just need to know understand as well time of the year like in winter crocodiles are a lot less likely to be active they're not mating anymore they're not breeding they're generally got a lot slower metabolism they're not feeding as much so it's safer in that sense but in summer especially after big rain after a lot of rain crocs will be pushed out of the estuaries and the river systems and the swamps and they'll be cruising along feeding on all the bait and the mud crabs and the barras that are sitting along the coastline so yeah, just because you think, oh, yeah, it's clean now after all that rain, just be really mindful that there will yeah, good chance uh, that there could be a croc. And one one piece of advice I was given from an old, like an old Spiro way back in the day, he said, and he'd dive a lot of Cooktown, north of Cooktown, and he said if he ever got to a rock or a headland where there wasn't one bit of life, not microbait, not bigger fish, medium fish, there was nothing, he'd get out because he said that is often a sign that there is a croc in the area. So I don't know how much truth to bring out of that up, but it's something that's stuck in my head. Have you ever wanted to build your very own DIY wooden spear gun? Fantastic bit of news for you. Episode 123 of the New Spear Podcast is with Killshot Spear Guns craftsman Ed Martin. And if you listen to that podcast, 
and visit neptonics.com, the spear gun builder section, you will find a recipe to create your fish killing machine and it'll have your stamp on it, no one else's. So visit neptonics.com, go to the spear gun builder page and listen to episode 123 of the new Sparrow podcast with Killshot Spear Guns craftsman Ed Martin. It's a recipe for success. It'll save you some pain on the learning curve and hopefully inspire a magical weapon of death where you can just slay fish galore. <laughs> Simple, accurate, deadly. Use the code NOOB, N-O-O-B, and save $30 on any spear gun for a limited time only. Go to killshotspearguns.com, check them out for yourself. Handmade in the Florida Keys by Ed Martin. Use the code NOOB, N-O-O-B, or head into the shop and say, Crikey, mate. And apparently Ed will hook you up with a $30 discount on any timber spear gun. Get your hands on one, killshotspearguns.com. Okay, cool, cool, cool. All right, we're moving on. Jack's scary stories. What do we got? Scary stories. I haven't swum with a crocodile yet. I say yet because it's, it's something to look it's, forward to. It's only a matter of time. <laughs> but um, just reiterating what As said, there's some areas, a lot of the spots I dive off Townsville is I'll only dive them at certain times of the year because of the crocodiles. So um, yeah, during the during the summer months where they're active and they're going through the breeding. Um, stages is yeah you'd be mad to dive these spots but come the winter time when it's all cooled down and they're just laying on the on the mud banks yeah you can get in with no worries thus far but um a scary moment would probably be there's been a a few different shark yarns but one that happened quite recently and was probably the most the the biggest adrenaline rush was when we're in samoa running a, a pacific tour in samoa we're out on this 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 area here, we, we took a fair bit of pioneering, and we um one of the local blokes who'd been around the boats in the area his whole life, he said, "Oh, no one has ever swum out here, you know, in the history of Samoa. Like this is as remote um, a place as you could ever think of diving, which was awesome." But we got in the water and um, just put, as you do when you blue water spearing, you put a, a heap of burley into the water. So all the frames from some nice doggies the day before we got. We're, um, you know, putting three or four doggy frames in the water and just making it absolutely rain with chum. Um, and then it was fairly quiet. Nothing had happened and, and the guys love eating Rainbow Runner. So a Rainbow Runner came in um, down at the bottom of the Burley Trail. So I, I dove down and as I dove down, I had a, a doggy frame in my left hand as I was lining up to shoot the Rainbow Runner in my right hand. Um, and this all seemed normal because it's kind of what we do all the time. But I'm, I'm lining up the Rainbow Runner to shoot. And just as I pull the trigger, I, I kind of peek to my left and out of the corner of my eye, this, this it was like the size of a school bus shark. And the thing that got me was how quick it came in. Like we, got, we had 40 metres visibility there, really clear water, and it was on the edge of visibility. And then within, boom, it was at me. And so quick and so powerful, and it the it the size of it was what, what got me as well. It was huge. It was a big bull shark, um, and it came in eyes um, as when you know a shark is about to bite something, it rolls this mucous membrane over its eye, basically goes in blind for the last meter. That's when you know it's it's about to bite. And um, I saw its mucous membrane rolled over. This all happens in a split second, but it's yeah, jaws open, snapping at me, and then it as it was right on me 
the rainbow runner kicked in front of me as I'd just taken the shot on the rainbow runner. And this shark then veered off from me and hit the rainbow runner, you know, 30 centimetres in front of my face, like on me. And um, and before, while that all happened, you don't have the chance to uh, move, blink. It's just happened so quick. Did you get footage? No, uh, we didn't. It just happened so quick that we normally only had footage on when it was going to be a, a hot session or someone shot a fish or saw a big doggy came in but this happened it was literally like lightning how fast it came in because i was on the top with uh, kahu one of the boys we were diving with legend love you kahu and we were both there next to each other shoulder to shoulder strick was at the bottom of the flasher and we saw out of the depths this shark coming in and just something it just a flick just switched it just bang it just went on so on so quick and it was just i thought he was going to get nailed i was looking at him going fuck i'm about to watch strick get nailed by a shark and we're going but it happened in a second like what strick explained was just lightning fast but luckily he didn't get nailed hey yeah well that's good <laughs> and um yeah we've had a lot of shark interactions where they you know hear a, pe- a shark buzzing someone it comes in and gives you a run a bit of a run around this wasn't buzzing this was coming in to eat and attack and like it was in that mode which was just after i kind of survived i was like that was just so impressive to see an apex predator in that mode like and how defenseless anything else would be in its way yeah it was full on was it was playing on your mind for a while yeah oh well that night quite um i didn't want to tell everyone because i didn't want to be dramatic or anything i kind of kept it pretty quiet but that night lying in bed i had a lot of like these flashbacks and you kind of have this uh, moment reality check on your life and where you're at and what you've achieved and your loved ones and and um, all these kind of, you know, really um, personal thoughts that people talk about this after near-death experiences and, and that kind of stuff. And I had this, this most euphoric night afterwards thinking about, you know, and I ended some relationships that night that, that you know, weren't doing well for me and I, you know, strengthened some and I really prioritised and made me appreciate the people I did have and who mattered. I thought it was just island fever that he sort of snuck <laughs> under the sheets and started to throw a leg. <laughs> hey, how's your boy? Come, and come a, nice, and, nice and close, lack. Couple of couple of coconut shells of carver helped. <laughs> helped <there. laughs> Is that all it takes for you, buddy? Eh? Oh, that's it, mate. Not much. Yeah, not much. Nah, a near-death experience and a bit of carver, eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's he, the secret. That's the secret, yep. <laughs> Just um, jump out of the way of a bus and then get on the carver and you'll have a wonderful night at the end of it. Yeah, I've, I've got on the carver a few times, actually. It's a different experience, that one. It's its own thing, isn't it? And it's hard to describe to someone. Well, it tastes like shit. I taste rubbish. Mud water and different yeah. carvers, you can often feel a different effect. Yeah, I had the Tongan stuff and then they were talking all about the Fijian stuff and maybe... You've got to oh, have that strong so shit. you got to you got to get on the Vanuatu stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the whole idea of carver, apart from drinking a muddy root, which is absolutely disgusting, the idea of it and where it originated from was if two... Um, tribe two villages next to each other had a um you know a feud between them then the two chiefs would get together have a couple of shells of this carver and anything that was once an issue is just problem solved and they go on living their merry life one thing that's coming through loud and clear is you guys have had a few near-death experiences between you yeah we could write a novel on it the lifestyle you've chosen definitely uh seems to lend to it that's for sure our our mums aren't too impressed they don't like getting phone calls at odd hours that's for sure tell me a little bit about back to basics where did the concept come from and what what is it about yeah so you asked at the start of the conversation which uh, we we skipped on but how strick and i met 
we met in Brisbane at college and it was a time in our lives where we felt I think both without um, without knowing it at the time, very out of place with where we were because Strick had grown up, Sunshine Coast, Samoa, Papua New Guinea and me in uh, the bush and up the farm in far north Queensland. And we'd come to the city because we thought, oh, yep, got to got to get a, get a degree. You go to uni and that's what you do. And then we – I think I went past your room one day in college and we I saw all over his wall was photos and there was lots of photos of catching fish and craze and – thank you – uh, and yeah, you know, we, we got conversation started about, you know, our, our backgrounds and what we're into. And he said, oh man, I, I grew up on, uh, you know, I grew up here and, you know, my dad was a commercial fisherman and uh, I spent a, a year after school working on Dunk Island, which Dunk Island was the island off where I'd lived. And we figured we had a mutual friend, Zach, and they knew each other. So I was like, oh, this dude, we obviously have a lot of common ground and we obviously hit it off by sharing stories about far north queensland and how beautiful the lifestyle was and all the things we were into was very mutual and then every chance we got when we weren't at uni even when we were probably meant to be at uni a lot of the time we'd be off at morton island we bought a little tinny and a motor that we kept moored up out in the brizzy river and we'd go scurfing and wakeboarding on sunset and it just we'd constantly have to bail it out and the motor would cut out and you'd sink to the brizzy bottom of the river and we were just doing all this like fun outdoor stuff and throwing crab pots in the brizzy river and you know always trying to get down to byron or anywhere in nature that we could uh, that we could you know have find solace in and and connect with nature and then we yeah we, we always something we always said and I, something i always said as well growing up with my brother was just man we've got to get back to basics like you'd, you'd just get caught in the thick of it and you'd be on the phone and the laptop and all the things and money and the just all the bombardment and the clutter of life. And I go, fuck, man, we just got to get back to basics. Take it, strip it all back, get back to basics. And yeah, that's, I guess, where it started. We'd always just be going back and forth going, man, look, what are we doing this weekend? We're getting back to basics. And we just make a little plan and, and go out and started filming it and taking photos. And then while we're in at Brisbane at uni, a lot of our mates and the circle of friends that we hung out with were all on weekends riding himself off at the pub and um, which is fine. There's all time and a place for that. We but, weren't impartial too. Yeah, yeah, which, you know, there's time and a place. But um, it, we'd be most of the time out camping and um, exploring Morton Island or Stratty and then we'd come back and we'd show these photos to our mates that are lying in bed with this horrible hangover after a three-day bender and they're going, geez, you blokes are so lucky you've been out there and, you know, and then it kind of... Th- we came up with this idea of, um, you know, sharing the adventures and showing that um, there's no luck involved. Anyone can get out there with a cheap tinny or um, there's all these accessible adventures right on your doorstep. You just got to sort of get into it and get out there and that's kind of how it all started. Bit of know-how and probably a lot of resilience and just an attitude of just, I'm just going to give this a crack as well probably. Yeah, and most of the time, just give it a crack, I reckon, is the go. And if you fail, you learn something and they're always the best adventures, which we laugh about now and our best trips have been where everything's gone wrong you know that's all that's all part of it so did you you guys were spearing in brisbane as well yeah spearing absolutely yeah did, yeah. did you enjoy it yeah it made us hell of a lot better divers because we were spoiled coming um spearing the reefs of north queensland where you swim 10 meters and shoot a heap of trout and um you think you're you know a gun spear and then down to brisbane and all of a sudden you've got to dive to a lot deeper depths even to have an opportunity at fish so um, you know, we became, we got, um, humbled pretty quickly there and realized we had to become better divers, which, which we did in that Brisbane sunny coast area. Did you guys do courses? 
following the incident of my blackout and a few other situations, we a strict had already done a, a level one freediving course in Koh Tao in Thailand, and I'd never done any freediving courses. But following that, we've done freediving courses up to a level three, and I've done my instructors as well. So, yeah, we spent a lot of time uh, after that YouTube, reading up, talking to doctors, talking to uh, physios, talking to old Spiros, talking to scuba divers, uh, freediving instructors. Has there been any resources that have sort of helped you guys along the way or people you'd recommend with your freediving journeys? Yeah, the, the biggest for me has been Adam Stern. And he is not only a great mentor in freediving, but a good friend. He's a rad dude, isn't he? Yeah, rad dude. He's just a good chat too. Yeah, like. Have you had you had him on here yet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But only recently. But Jeepers, he's a funny bugger. Oh, he's just <laughs> he's the man. But what's also so good with him is he's so childish, no ego, all funny. But he's all knowledge. So if you start getting into the the nitty gritty of freediving, and oh, he dispelled some of my ideas. He's so. passionate and curious. He constantly finds out more of his craft. Yeah, yeah. Like he's his myth busting approach is good. Like um, you know, like putting the like on his YouTube channel, he's got. People, he's putting them under the uh, the MRI and watching how it all works and stuff, and the things they thought that were doing what necessarily so. So it was really cool to have a look and see it broken down. Yeah, love Adam, and he loves an adventure as well. He's got a very adventurous spirit. He's dropped some knowledge bombs over time. Yeah, definitely. Adam Adam Stern would be probably the, the key one for me. But then also just reframing myself from the knowledge I was getting off certain videos on YouTube and and just reading up more about the body and how how everyone's so very different as well and every day every dive you do is different you can't class how you are the same on every day you can't think that you can perform the same every day because the night before you might have had a few drinks or you might be dehydrated for some reason or you might have had much sleep or what's your guys prep yeah. for a good dive day oh what what i'm, what I'm meant to do <laughs> yeah. and what i actually do are very different things here so let's just assume or yeah, pretend yeah. that everything went went to plan how what would that look like for a good big day's diving early to bed light dinner the night before and then on the morning of just um i don't mind eating eating a fair bit in the morning a lot of people say it gives them heartburn i normally go bacon and eggs and then just with load it up load it up as as much as you can get and then just a bit of fruit for a morning tea and then that'll get me through the day so no lunch um a lot a lot of water the night before a lot of water during um but that's it no no other secret tips or tricks no i biggest for me is being hydrated I find that's how I best perform, being hydrated and being warm, feeling comfortable in the water. So do you take any salts or hydrolyte or any of that sort of stuff? No, I, I think that I've been working a long time on my overall physical, mental, emotional health and wellness, and that's a very big part of my life. So I think just generally nutritional-wise, I like to keep myself ready for anything. <laughs> like if I need to go for a dive the next day, I just, yeah, you, you know that you should be primed and ready. I knew I shared a lot in common with you. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you got those same yoga bodies, boys. It looks like you've you've been working on them for you years. Tell. You can tell a downward dog from fifty paces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like... yeah Stricky's been working on a couple of cat cows on the front front bow in the morning. <laughs> How bad are the cat cows? You wouldn't do them in front of people, would you? Oh, depends who you ask. <laughs> depends who's looking. Depends who's doing the cat cows. <laughs> I'm one of those dudes that does yoga and I've started only doing it in the last 12 months and I just do it off YouTube videos. That way I can do it in my undies 
in my lounge on a yoga mat. No one sees anything, apart from if my housemate walks in awkwardly. And Was that just to get everyone thinking of you and Yandi sweating on a yoga mat? Yeah, yeah nice. I've got that visual in my head for the rest of the night. <laughs> With Hungry Jack's special sauce just leaking down into my bed. <laughs> yeah, there goes the good night's sleep. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Shrek's at your door. Hey. No, but... hey, guys, let's get back to basics. <laughs> Are you listening into this podcast thinking about your neglected spear guns down in the shed? But if you're like me, go to neptonics.com, buy yourself some new rubber, some new rigging, get your spear gun tip top so that you're ready when that fishing trip comes around the corner, you get the random phone call, we've got to wear the window, the fish are running, let's get into it. Neptonics.com, to sweeten it up, use the code NOOB10 to save 10% off storewide at neptonics.com. Get those spear guns sorted. Don't be like Shrek. We've already segued there. Funny stuff. You guys have uh, probably made a couple of jokes in your time. Funny stuff. Funny stuff from spearing trips. The list could go on, but a lot of it's probably not appropriate for um, over the, the frequency of the radio because a lot of the, the spearing trips we do are on you know the boys' trips and the boys' getaways. So there's always a good time that ensues. But I do have a funny one from under the water spearing. Far away, yeah, shoot. All right, so we're down. We'd wanted to shoot a big snapper for years. So um, hunting out of Brisbane, as anyone who's tried knows, they're a, a very cunning fish, very difficult to hunt and very difficult to shoot. We hadn't shot one at this stage, so we went We went south thinking, you know, if you go a bit south, they might be a bit easier to shoot. We find this area, long story short, find this area, it's firing, the, the, the current's doing the right thing, there's snappers stacked up on this ledge. Um, it's Aaron's turn to make a dive. So he dives down and I can just see him from the surface and, and the snapper just, the school didn't spook. So they were just staying up current and he's, it was incredibly stealthy. It was incredibly stealthy. He's stretched out. And when you can see the diver stretch out and give a last little kick, the snapper just didn't spook. I'm like, he's going to, he's going to nail this. He's on him. He's on top of it. And he pulls the trigger. And the spear just comes out ever so slowly on a 45 degree angle. And the gun wasn't loaded. <laughs> he could have, he could have, he could have almost poked it in the head. And at the point the snapper didn't the snapper even know. Moved. No, no, the snapper didn't know it had been shot. It was just like, Bloop. <laughs> just hit the sand. We had been out the night before in Byron dancing on tables. I will give that as context. However, still no excuse. So the snapper, the one that got away. Yeah. How good is that Aaron B2B Spiro? He's just such a good spirit. Uh, we all we all learn and grow from the experiences we have. Um, <laughs> Did you end up shooting one, or was that the end of the story? Oh no, no, I no, I completely cooked it. No, I got got some kingies and some other cool stuff. But yeah, ended the ended the chapter on the snapper. Uh, only ever shot, I think, two after that. But yeah, <laughs> no, never as big. No, I was going to move into gear. Yeah, sure. What's in your gear bag? Sort of head to toe. What's your go-to gear up where you for what we have on this trip? Yeah, okay, yeah, let's do this trip. Yeah, yeah, okay, so. I've got a Dreno Weddy 3 mil. I've got, yeah, long, long bladed fiberglass fins, decent gloves, weight belt, mask, GoPro mount. I've got a Hollis mask with a little inbuilt GoPro mount, which is Hollis. great. Is that what it's called? Hollis? Yeah, Hollis, yeah, Hollis okay. is the brand. I, Me, preferably with a mask, it can't be tinted. It's got to be clear. I like them big eyed and low profile. And that does it for you. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, it does it for me. Yeah. I've I've just used them since I was 12, 13, 14. And I've yeah, I've, it's the only masks I've ever I've used that profile. 
With the GoPro mask, have you ever like banged your head on the roof of a cave and flooded your mask? Yeah. Oh, not flooded my mask, maybe once or twice, but I'm generally, I'm, I'm quite mindful now because I've been wearing the GoPro on the top for a while and I, I try not to stick my, my head in places it doesn't belong, which isn't always the case, but do my best. Uh, and yeah, got a 1-4 got a Rob Allen and a 1-1 one, one, uh, one, one Rob Allen for close quarters in around the, the Rollers reef. or? Uh, I like... I do like rollers. I, I swap between both, but yeah, ideally I'd have a one-one roller and a, like a one-three-one-four railgun. Optimal. Uh, I like using a carbon just because they they tack so smooth through the water, so light. And yeah, then I've got I've got a I've got a thirty-meter float line, uh, then a big yellow Adreno float, which is sensational because it, yeah, it's got to be it's that big fifteen-liter yeah fifteen-liter type yeah, one yeah. Yeah, as long as it's for me, as long as the float is made out of something really durable, if it's inflatable or a hard one and bright, super bright, and yeah, just all your normal stuff. Eh? I got a couple of couple of reels on the guns to fifty meters, good knife, and yeah, all all my bits and pieces and and spares. Loctite four hundred six is a good one to have. Yeah, for for cuts or for little bits and pieces and mends. So yeah, tricky. Loctite 406. I think you're the first person that's ever mentioned that, yeah, and it's probably a quite a common one. Yeah, right. Really, one of the guys on board actually cut himself with a knife um, recently. He just got his whole leg Loctited back up. So it's, yeah, Loctite's it's, really practical. We use really, it a lot. Yeah. I don't know if that should be proper medical advice, but... Um, <laughs> Loctite all cuts. Yeah. Lo- <laughs> Um, as for my dive bag, we actually just did a video last week and put it on YouTube um, explaining what, I'll we, link it up then. what we put on in our travel yeah. bag there for our Pacific tours. So I did actually see that. Yeah, I didn't watch the video, but I saw the link yeah, and I thought... It's specifically oh, for blue water spearing, but it covers a lot of what we have on mm. trips generally. Yeah. Mm. But for this trip, I've got Adreno 3mm wetsuit. As you mentioned, I'm going to get a bit cold, so Adreno 5mm wetsuit over the top. And I've been mixing and matching them. Um, depending what the temperature is like, as what goes better. Well, I'm actually going a bit, a bit um, away from what most people suggested here. I'm going the the warm five mil long john pants over my shoulder, the overalls, and the three mil over the top. And that works for you. Uh, at the moment, it does. Yeah, yeah. If I miss a few fish, I'll blame it on the wetsuit setup. Um, and then as for guns, I've got a one one Samburu Rob Allen. Um, I would like, really like that on the shallow reef. And then I've got I've just got a brand new one three roller, Samburu roller, and I feel like a bully hunting on the reef with it. It's just the gun is too good, so I find that really really good for an area of the Spanish mackerel around. It gives you that bit of bit of range, um, and on the reef for um, jobbies, and trout, and red emperor, and those kind of things, you just feel like a bully. It's just got so much range, and it's it's an awesome gun. Are you a mono shooting line man, or what are you doing? I just run it however it comes from the shop, to be honest, and and however it never breaks, yeah, <laughs> and it never breaks. That's right. But um, yeah, I'm not not too opinionated either way. I just throw it on, and she'll be right, and just run with it. And mm. if he loses a fish, oh, the, the rigging line wasn't meant to be. <laughs> yeah. yeah, love it. Let's do last section. Um, Spiro Q and A. You guys ready? Fast paced question. Who are you hitting with? Is it? Let's go, Jack. Um, dream spearfishing destination. Um. Louisiade Archipelago. Uh-huh. <laughs> the Louisiade Archipelago. It's um, it's an archipelago in Papua New Guinea that's really remote, hard to get to, crystal clear blue water, and not many people, big dog tooth tuna. Yeah, right, eh? 
Awesome. All right. Have you got a dream destination? Uh, yeah, I'd like to venture over to Cocos Keeling Islands and do some diving around there. And where's that? Cocos Keeling Islands is off the WA coast. It's Australian owned and other than a little bit of tourist, some retired folk living there and uh, a bit of a military base. There's not much happening there and the marine life is out of control. Dream species. Dream species for me is always going to be the dog tooth tuna. No matter what size I get, I'll just want a bigger one. So... Yeah, hands down, doggies for me. Biggest so far? Uh, 40 kilos. Okay. Since the dog tooth has already been mentioned, I will go Cubera Snapper because I've always really loved Jacks. And Cubera Snapper, from what it looks like, they're big, gnarly, and found in destinations that I'd personally, for the culture, the food, the people, would love to travel. Yeah, nice. And a different question each here. Um, who has been the most influential personal people in your spearfishing, Jack? Um, oh, personal person. I'd say I've been really lucky of started spearing with a group of mates and we've kept that same core group of mates and everyone in that group had a different skill set some had good bottom time some could hunt pelagic some could hunt bottom uh reefies on the bottom so with we've kind of blended our skill set into each other so that group of mates they know who they are but sexy lexi zach kirk and and as um that group we've kind of all got better together and they're the people that have helped me most for sure sick man good answer as what does the spearfishing experience mean to you the spearfishing experience for me the spearfishing experience is about exploring and further understanding the underwater world on a deeper level and coming home with a good bit of seafood fresh seafood to share with your family and friends like that for me is the core of it that was nice and neat man well done that was a fast summary um where can where can guys come and connect with you and find out a bit more about back to basics on instagram b number two b adventures b2b adventures on instagram facebook back number two basics adventures and website b2b adventures and youtube channel b2b adventures we're yeah. trying to pump out weekly episodes on youtube so that's a good spot place to spot by if you've got some time to <laughs> except kill except when we're out here on a liveaboard charter yeah. <laughs> with no reception well, you'll have plenty of raw footage there to go back and uh, edit into the next few episodes, that's for sure. Um, what's coming up next for you guys? Have you got some big projects on the go? You, you do all sorts of stuff. You've done a bit of TV. You've done Great Northern. You've done bloody... Yes, yeah, so our, our brand's kind of split, in, split into these different kind of um, areas and that we do marketing and promotion for brands like um, yeah, Great Northern, like you touched on, and BCF. So that takes us on some pretty cool... Um, adventures but the pacific tours we've been running are going really well and there's a heap of um, cool spots we want to get to unfortunately due to the whole COVID-19 thing that's had to be shut down so it's charter business yeah so we're meant to be in Vanuatu at the moment for you know the whole month of June but that due to travel restrictions is, is closed down so as soon as borders open we'll be looking at getting back deep into the pacific and um, taking some people with us yeah, and in terms of in the next, say, six to 12 months, places we'd really like to get to or go back to, uh, one is Haggerston Island, which is, uh, to give everyone context if you don't know, is up below, it's on the, on the Great Barrier Reef in northern, northern, far north, as north as you get Cape York, yeah. uh, just under Torres Strait Island. So there's an island there and atolls and reefs and shelves around it that are exquisite and just the whole adventure of getting there. Go, we'd take a trailer boat, take the truck, make a bit of a mission of it. And we'd love to get up to Papua New Guinea again. We've done a trip there together uh, quite a few years ago now and just the, the untouched adventures that are accessible through there, we, we need to find out. 
<laughs> what's accessible so sounds yeah. sick you guys have got to build an awesome thing great youtube channel um i think anyone that listens to this podcast is going to get a a ton of um, value and, and have and have have a ton of vicarious fun i think just from watching you blokes actually live the life that a lot of us would like i think so um awesome and uh really cool to chat with you no we really appreciate you having us on isaac great to meet you and i look forward to diving with you tomorrow and we love what you do with the podcast like i like connecting people with uh, stories and real life experiences from other people can only make others get become uh, safer and and just build that curiosity uh, in their in their adventures thanks for having us on mate loved it thanks for sharing your story guys powerful awesome cool peace and love everyone <laughs> spearing magazine are the world's premier spearfishing magazine it's a publication for spearos by spearos it's full of just hard charging articles to inspire your next spearfishing adventure check it out at spearingmagazine.com massive chat with the b2b adventure boys today uh you know, awesome to get out on that charter trip with them and just chat. I could have carried on with those boys all the time. I'm going to get up north and hang out with them and do a bit more diving with them. Uh, also, a big thanks today to Joe Hayes, the podcast editing guru who's put this show together for us. So, a big hands together for Joe. Cheers, bro. And um, hey, if you love the New Story podcast, come along to Patreon and support the podcast on an episode by episode basis. Join about 30 other legend patrons over there funding the Noob Sparrow podcast you get access to an exclusive episode the first of many um, there's an episode in there all about spearfishing equipment it goes for about two hours two and a half hours just everything you need to know about equipment really good interesting funny chat and some really cool insights and we all we talk about is spearfishing equipment it's amazing how uh, how deep down that rabbit hole we go so go to patreon.com forward slash to get hold of that and uh, get, listen to that exclusive episode. Um, big thanks to the Back, Back to Basics boys today. Um, and thanks for listening to you and leaving reviews, sharing the show with mates. It helps us grow. Legends, see you again in a fortnight. Booze. Oh, hey, by the way, the next episode is the Bunker Charter Trip Chopper Rescue Story. And uh, there's a whole heap of cool stuff in there, along with um, some interviews with all the other people I went diving with for that week. So check it out. See ya. The Noob Sphere Podcast. Great content, fantastic guests. And uh, to go with that, we've got some free online courses by Ted Hardy at Immersion Freediving. Head over to noobsphere.com forward slash Ted and learn to take a bigger breath hold. Learn how to use your full chest to take down more fuel so that you can stay on the bottom for longer. Check it out, noobsphere.com forward slash Ted.